morning. I'm Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you. I've, uh, I've developed kind of an interest in some stand-up comedy. Not the, there's a lot of crass, vulgar, cheap stuff, not, not that, but there's serious stuff too. And if you listen to the way that some comedians talk about their craft, they talk about it as a craft, where they are preaching to the culture. They're trying to like use humor to wake up, uh, in their mind, whatever is wrong with the culture, to wake them up from it. And so one guy I was listening to, he, he walks out on stage at the start of his show, quotes some uh, prophetic Prince song, and then says, we must never forget that Anthony Bourdain killed himself. And if you don't know who Anthony Bourdain is, that's the end of the part I'm quoting. Anthony Bourdain was a uh, world-famous chef, and he literally had the dream job. He was paid to travel the world to eat the best food with the most interesting people. So what is he trying to say, that comedian? We must never forget. To me, he is saying, look how pitiful the world is. The one who accomplished the dream of the world. Maybe there's something wrong with our dreams. right? Well, it is a kind of wake-up call, I think. A kind of turning your expectations upside down, your perception of the world upside down uh, that Nebuchadnezzar receives here from God. We need to try to ask ourselves, what, what would it take for us to really be able to hear this? Because here, Nebuchadnezzar is unmasked. He is stripped bare. The emperor has no clothes here. What would it take for us to listen, to be recalibrated, to be open to a revelation of this sort in our life and in our world. Let's pray that God would open us up. God, we do praise you for this day that you have met with us, that we have heard forgiveness of your gospel, that you have welcomed us into your presence And God, we dare to ask for even more. We ask because of Christ that you would make us more and more into his image. That you would open our hearts and our minds to see that our world and our hearts are upside down in comparison to what you call us to do and to be in comparison with who Christ is. So may your spirit use your word in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we are, Jerry and I are preaching through the book of Daniel. Uh, Lest you think it was some kind of cynical intent that we would have the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar on the week of the inauguration, it is not. I hope you're not that cynical. Uh, It just happens to be the passage that we uh, come to in the book of Daniel. And Just to remind you a bit of the context, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who has defeated and and taken 
the exiles from Israel has destroyed the temple, destroyed much of the city, and taken the sort of elites to use for his own good to try to uh, basically typical imperial power uh, to take over and influence the elites. And so we've seen Daniel and his three uh, friends uh, in the last couple of chapters uh, be involved with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, both in just giving advice, but then also confronting Nebuchadnezzar when he's calling them to uh, idolatry. In this chapter, it is a, somewhat of a strange chapter because it starts off with Nebuchadnezzar addressing us, addressing the, the readers of this letter, but it's really about uh, this confrontation that he is to have with reality. There is a, uh, an aspect that we all need to confront the reality of who God is and what that means for us. It's not, not unlike, you know, at the end of a play, regardless of the king, whoever was playing the king, whoever was playing the beggar, whoever was playing the maiden in this dramatic play, at the end, they all come out as equals and are, they are showing us, yes, we are just regular people. Our role is over. There's a confrontation, a reminder of reality. We often try to avoid reality, right? But what does it mean to be confronted by it? And so first, the first main point I want us to consider that he is showing us what it means that worldly power is deceitful. And so how does God want to unmask the deceits of worldly power? And then we're going to come eventually to the truths of the cross. But the first thing that we see in what worldly power does is that it trusts in false prosperity and comfort. We're going to see what it trusts in, what it hides behind, and then what it believes. So the first thing is that it trusts in false prosperity and comfort. Nebuchadnezzar, we are told here, was at ease and prospering. So he was enjoying his life. And Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's, he's a big deal. Secular sources, biblical sources, he is a big deal. Everyone recognizes this fact. He created one, maybe two, of the so-called ancient wonders, uh, the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, there's a, a painting I, I, I found of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which we're not really sure what they look like, but that painting had these unbelievable gardens around his palace and then with the Tower of Babel in the background as a kind of hint at what's going on. But as we see in the description of the dream and the description of him as this tree that provides for all things in the world, that is, in some ways, of the known world. Yeah, he was the emperor of this huge empire. So he was trusting in that. Seems reasonable. Trusting in the comfort that it provided. But of course, the pomp and circumstance of his life, as it often does, just lies. It lies to him. It lies to those under him. But notice what Daniel does. Daniel, once he comes to the king, 
He first doesn't want the prophecy to be true, which is interesting. Because Daniel is in exile from Israel, and he has just witnessed Nebuchadnezzar's evil of destroying Israel, knows how evil of a king he is, but he doesn't, he's not glad of what the prophecy is saying, which is striking to me, I think. He doesn't want it to be true. He says, may it be true of your enemies. That, to me, is already a bit of a hint of uh, what it means to confront evil or to confront others. He is not saying, told you so. You were wrong. I was right. He is not glad. He is not glad. If you, uh, I hope you didn't miss last week's sermon, and if you did miss it, I would suggest you go back and listen. It was just an important sermon for our church and our, uh, our society. But if you remember, what I, one of the things I was struck by was that the, the sort of naming of sin was done in tears. And that to me seems right. That a Christian is never self-righteous in his or her condemnation. And I was reminded that when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, In Luke 19, the context of that is very striking. So Jesus goes through the triumphal entry, which is when he's entering Jerusalem for that last time, and the people are praising him, welcoming him as the king King David that they think he is. He's going to come and save them from Israel. And then he goes and weeps over Jerusalem, Because he knows that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, he says. He knows that in 70 AD it's going to be destroyed. And he weeps that they do not know what they are doing. And right after that in Luke is when he goes and cleanses the temple. And I had never noticed, you kind of wonder, is he cleansing the temple temple, and his eyes are still not dry from weeping. It seems to be immediately after. We always picture him cleansing the temple, and he's angry, and then we can justify all of our anger because of that one instance. But he's not glad. Daniel is not glad that Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall, that he is going to be humiliated. But he does want us to see that worldly power is deceitful. That it trusts in the wrong things. That pomp and circumstance often, not always, but often it is deceitful. We're going to see a lot of pomp and circumstance this week around the inauguration. And it should not be surprising for a Christian to realize a lot of that is just, it's just going to lie to us. It's just, I mean, it's just what every government in the history of the world has tried to do. If you go, I mean, America, like, like any other country, tries 
to create some kind of civil religion. That's what we do, right? We have sacred scriptures, like the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. You go to shrines, like the memorial of, of Thomas Jefferson, and what is being hailed? Human reason as the greatest authority. And that's what Jefferson sees is the prize and the pride of America. It shouldn't surprise us that it's going to lie. That doesn't mean it's all bad. Pomp and circumstance doesn't have to lie, right? Of course there should be grand ceremony because of the office that is being uh, inaugurated. But it shouldn't surprise us also that it's going to be a mixture of deceit and truth. when we try to trust in prosperity and comfort as if that tells us what is real. Well, it's deceitful in another way. It's deceitful in that it hides behind false curiosity or false knowledge. And this is another striking thing that uh, I didn't quite catch on first reading, but I think it's definitely there. Um, The way that Curiosity or a supposed lack of knowledge is a, is a smokescreen for Nebuchadnezzar. So he's understandably afraid of this dream that he has had. But he should have known pretty immediately after the dream what it was all about. If you notice, Nebuchadnezzar's own words of describing the dream gives the purpose of the dream. In verse 17 he says, This decision by the word of the holy ones, these angel figures, to the end, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. He knows the purpose. Nebuchadnezzar knows the purpose. But, like we often do so much, He is hiding behind this this kind of curiosity. I need someone to interpret it. I need someone to tell me. It it can't really mean this, right? Don't we do that? So Nebuchadnezzar has a theology where he can just adapt Yahweh, adapt the God of Daniel, into his pantheon of God. And that seems to be what's happening here. He calls Daniel Belteshazzar. pronounced it better than I can. Uh, Daniel's name is he's named after one of the uh, the gods of Babylon, right? And over and over in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, description, that name is is repeated, as if to remind us this god is really the god we should care about. But Daniel has some kind of special wisdom or spirit. So he has a way to adapt what he is being confronted in his dream into his pantheon. And the same thing happens with Jesus. In the first century, not a big deal for Romans to say Jesus is a God, Jesus is a Lord. Sure, add him to the list. The problem is, and the way that our heart uses this kind of curiosity or lack of knowledge, our heart uses... Knowledge to say, 
but I will never declare that Jesus is the Lord. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. So consider just ways. Maybe, maybe you're a non-Christian or you're considering Jesus, you're considering what this is all about. Are there ways that a kind of lack of knowledge is really just a smokescreen for you not wanting to submit to God? I remember, some of you remember Jenny Hanberg, Jenny and Simon. Before she converted, uh, when she was in college, she had a question about the differences between the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. She's like, oh, but this, this genealogy says this, and this genealogy says this. Why is there a difference? And after, you know, years later, she was able to joke because she realized that is not what is preventing her from professing Christ. Right? She didn't want to bow her knee to Jesus the Lord. And so she's going to find, just like we do, we're going to find all sorts of rationalities to justify what our heart is doing. We do that ourselves, I think. We do that as Christians. Oh, I just, I, I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know enough about what it means to be holy, so I'm going to stay in my sin, stay in my laziness, not do what is obvious God is calling me to do. Does that happen to you? Do you get caught behind... I don't know, maybe you don't think you know enough about politics or theories of economics. And so you get caught up in trying to figure out what is the right theory. And you forget the first primary obvious truth of the scripture, which is that if you are a Christian and you have been touched by the gospel, you should love justice. You should love the poor. You should hate injustice. These are obvious to us. If you point out any major saint or martyr in the history of the church, I will show you where they talk about the love of the poor. And so we, get, we hide behind, oh, we don't quite know what to do. We don't know all the right theories. We don't know all the right context, and we forget the basic truths, the primary truths, because we are poor in spirit. We love because we first, he first loved us. Do not let your curiosity, your thirst for the interesting, be an excuse for sin, an excuse for Laziness. So worldly power trusts in false prosperity and comfort. It hides, <coughs> hides behind false uh, a sense of curiosity. And then it believes in false hope. So before we get to the cross, I think we see the sense in which it believes in false hope. What I mean by that is that it just assumes that this, the future is going to be the same as the present. 
You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar looking around, look at all that I have made. This is going to last forever. Right? No matter how <clears throat> no matter how great he is, we should see how that is so foolish. And I was reminded by uh, by this, I was reminded of a, a poem called Ozymandias. And before you think I'm cultured and aware of lots of poems, it, I only came to it because of uh, one of the final episodes of Breaking Bad, which uses Ozymandias as an incredible uh, depiction of this sort of destruction of someone who is great. And so if you imagine, uh, Ozymandias re- refers to Ramses II, who is Ramses the Great, who apparently was the most powerful uh, pharaoh of the most powerful era of Egyptian power. All right, so Ramses II is a big deal. But the poem describes an encounter with his fallen statue. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. So you imagine you're in the desert, this huge uh, face, stone face, is fallen in the sand, and you see his legs somewhere else. And on the pedestal of this statue, and on the pedestal, these words appear My name is Ozymandias. King of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What a mockery of worldly power. Behold, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. How foolish to think that it's going to last forever, that any government is going to last forever. It is obvious that it will not. That's what power, that's what riches we are told over and over in Scripture. It's what it does to us. It gives us false hope. It tries to convince us to believe in something that is false. To hope in something that is not true. The parable of the rich fool, one of the many examples. Jesus tells this parable. And how does it end? But God said to him, fool. He had been gathering all these riches in his barn. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then right after that, no pause. And he said to his disciples, Jesus, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Why is he comforting them? 
Because they should be so rich toward God, they should be worried about this life. And he says, don't be anxious about that either. I know you're going to be giving away so much money, you may be anxious about how you can provide, but you don't have to worry about that either. So what are you anxious about? What deceits do you buy into? You need to ask yourself that. There are all sorts of ways to try to diagnose that. And I would encourage you to try and do that. One, one famous quote, I think it's Archbishop Temple, said, your religion is what you do with your, in your solitude. Maybe that's one way you can figure out. When you're all alone, what do you think about? What do you get anxious about? What do you believe in and hope in? Nothing beside remains. All of the pedestals will be crushed but one. But one. Because this is all the, the sort of prologue, the necessary prologue to the good news. Nothing beside remains except that's why this necessary prologue is all such good news that we would want to be true and that we would want to believe and trust. That we can see the truths of the cross and love them. So the second main point is simply recognizing the truths of the cross. And it's here in Daniel. Lest you think that the wisdom of the cross is not in the Old Testament, it's actually all over the place. The passage we heard read in 1 Corinthians, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Jeremiah 9. The one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Over and over, Israel is told, do not trust in the otherworldly powers. You don't have to make another treaty. You've already got a treaty with God. Stop making other covenants. Jeremiah 27 tells us, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who did that. Ezekiel, they're not going to help you, he says. It's over Isaiah. Psalm 18, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. All of these ways that they were tempted to trust in worldly powers instead of the so-called foolish power of God. Joshua, there's so little about the military in Joshua, it's amazing. Because it's all God's might. And so we need to realize how the truth of the cross turns reality upside down. Where we see that in this passage in, in Nebuchadnezzar, I think it's pretty obvious actually. The main part of the dream is that tree, this huge tree that we're told covers the earth, and it's where all of the animals receive their food and sustenance, and the birds of the heavens to take shelter. A tree was a common metaphor uh, for a representative of God. It was a common metaphor for an emperor to provide, or even for God himself, the way that he provides for the earth. 
So the tree covers the land and is providing for the land. And after the tree is cut down, Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to learn, remember, I'll say it again, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar should have been afraid when he heard that. Because that does sound crazy. He's going to give it to the lowest? He's going to give power of the entire world to the lowliest? That should sound foolish. Daniel affirms this. Till you know, you will be humiliated until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You see the irony in this dream that the one who covers the whole land with his supposed power and provision must become like the beasts of the land. The one who supposedly reaches up to the heavens, the tree reaches up to the heavens, almost like the tree of life, giving life to the world, he must be brought down so that he may know that heaven and not him rules. If he wants to be king again, he needs to realize that he's actually not the real king. If we want to be godly, we need to realize that we are not God. And not just theoretically realize that, but practically. Theoretically, sure, we're monotheists, there's one God. Practically, we're polytheists, aren't we? There's all sorts of gods in our hearts. There's an amazing irony in this passage. It's turning upside down to see that the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, as deceitful as it is, is madness, is foolish. That's the wisdom of the cross. That is the wisdom of the cross, that our world is upside down. It's foolish, quote-unquote, right? It's foolish to the world. Sometimes when, when my kids are getting dressed, Eli, my youngest, will say, Daddy, can you inside out my shirt? We need to inside out our perspective on reality. Because it gets warped. It gets confused. We need to turn it right side up. So we see that the wisdom of the cross turns everything upside down and then of course it applies therefore to everyone. Nebuchadnezzar is not exempt. It was pretty common back then and there's a contrast here with Genesis 1. It's pretty common for Everyone to believe that the emperor was made in the image of God. He represented God. But all the other people don't. For Genesis to say that every human is made in the image of God was revolutionary. Because every, the context where they're writing that, all the Canaanite religions, Babylonian religions, only think the king and the emperor is made in the image of God. So this reality of the cross 
of turning everything upside down applies to all of us. It can destroy all senses of pride. Right? Christ was humiliated. We must never forget the King of Kings was crucified. The King of Kings, the one who actually could sit at ease in real prosperity, was crucified willingly, was humiliated, brought down to the dust willingly. That's what you see in Philippians 2, that him, the one who was equal with God, did not consider it something to take advantage of, but became human, and then it keeps going down and down and down. Willingly, he was humiliated to the point of death, even on a cross, so that we may have life. Is that good news to you? Do you boast in that sort of wisdom and power? We need to, as it were, let ourselves be unmasked. Let ourselves be humbled. There's a basic surrender to the Christian life, right? Your will be done, not mine. That we need to remind ourselves over and over again in the face of an upside-down world that we would remember the revelation of the cross, the word of the cross that turns it right side up. It's a kind of retraining, I think, that we need to have. And this is not unique. This is what Christian discipleship is. Retraining ourselves to not be impressed, not be intimidated by worldly power. Not be deceived by it. Not be overly anxious about it. Because we know it is not true. That's what the spiritual disciplines are meant to do. To retrain our hearts. To love humility. To have compassion. To love compassion. Not just know that we should do it. What are those priorities? What are those rises in your heart and in your life that need to be rethought, redone, retrained according to the wisdom of the cross. Because you have bought in too much to the deceit of the world. In, in the section that I go to a lot just personally uh, in Scripture where he's really, I think, re- bringing the wisdom of the cross to bear practically is 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Three, four, and five. And I noticed just this week that there's a couple refrains that he repeats. So, this is the section where he talks about carrying around in his body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be made manifest. But he says a couple times, therefore, we do not lose heart. And he has these lists of sufferings and persecutions. But then again, he says, so. We do not lose heart. And then in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, we are always of good courage. And then again, always of good courage. 
This is the only way to always be of good courage. To see power for what it is, to see the world for what it is. The only way to be of good courage because you know that nothing beside remains except the real King of Kings. Otherwise, you will not always be of good courage. You will despair. You will be constantly anxious. But the way, the way to always be of good courage is to be unmasked. See that the humiliation and death of Christ is where you get glory and life. And we will learn that more and more as we are humbled because that's how we receive it. It's a glory that only humility can bear. Let's pray. Father, make us humble. Make us humble because we have encountered the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Because we have been transformed by the power of Your Gospel that declares the victory over death. The death of death. And the death of Your Son. Father, we thank You for Your Word. May Your Spirit retrain our hearts to love You and to love our neighbor in Jesus' name.